I speak to you in the name of the one who came to bring new life. Amen. Please be seated. Christians have a certain fixation with bodies. The early Roman Christians were sometimes arrested for digging up dead bodies. And the city of Rome was a holy city in the mind of the Romans, and part of what made it holy, part of what kept it holy, was that it was a city for the living. There was a wall around the city, and the dead were buried outside the city limits. And Christians would get in trouble for digging up the graves by night and bringing the bones into the city. Christians also early were in trouble for worshiping among the catacombs. I remember as a little kid, I've sort of always been a church geek, and as a little kid, I really wanted to go and see the cathedrals of Europe that I heard about and read about and saw pictures of. I'd always wanted to see those cathedrals, and I finally got to go when I was a senior in college, and I studied abroad at Oxford University, and I went to every cathedral within reach. And I remember being surprised, shocked even, by how many dead bodies there were. Every wall, it seemed, had graves in it, but, but more than the walls, the cathedrals, even the parish churches, the stone pavement was covered with markers. You worshipped on top of foundations that were filled with the generations that had gone before. Christians carry their dead with them. Even here at Holy Communion, even as I preach to you, I can see out of the corner of my eye our columbarium, where many of our congregation have been laid to rest. We bring our dead with us. Today's scripture tells us why. This story from John is the culmination of a book inside of the book of John that is known as the book of the seven signs, traditionally. In Scripture, and especially in books like John in the Bible, time doesn't always work chronologically as much as emblematically. At the beginning of creation, there were seven days of creation, and there are seven signs in John. Early in creation, God separates the waters from the waters. And early in his ministry, Jesus turns water into wine. I think Jesus wins that one. At the last of these seven signs, though, after healing and walking on water, Jesus comes to Bethany, and the raising of Lazarus is the last of the seven signs. Just as the last act of creation before God rests, God gives life to humanity. Jesus brings new life to Lazarus. John's a little difficult if it's not just about time and working emblematically, not just chronologically. It's, it's a difficult story to read. You could hear some of that difficulty in the convoluted dialogue, the way that Jesus addresses people and addresses God. John was the last gospel to be written, and sometimes John tells more than John shows. John spends a lot of time explaining, and it's thick with detail and thick with explanation. But even John can't gloss over the humanity 
at the heart of today's gospel. And today's gospel has the shortest sentence in all of scripture. Unfortunately, not in our translation that we're reading right now, the Common English Bible, but in the Greek and in the King James, the shortest sentence in scripture comes in this chapter of John in our reading today. It says simply, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What's so stunning about that is Jesus has spent a much of the last several paragraphs explaining how Lazarus is appearing to sleep and what he's going to do and how Lazarus will be raised and how it's for all of our edification and that we might believe. And then Jesus gets to Bethany and Jesus wept. I found myself this week wondering about Jesus in Bethany. Twice, Jesus has to hear from the sisters, once from Martha, brother, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then from Mary, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then those words are given to the crowd. If he'd been here, he had healed the blind man Maybe Lazarus wouldn't have died. I found myself this week thinking about Jesus and the choice that Jesus made to delay coming to Bethany. I found myself thinking, questioning whether part of the weeping, part of the reason Jesus becomes disturbed again as he sees the tomb, as John tells us, had to do with his decision, whether Jesus was questioning whether he had made the right choice. I, I confess I've not thought about this question before. When I've preached this gospel before, I've tended to rush right to the end, to those wonderful, wonderful words, untie him and let him go. I've run right to the end, to the good news that we so need to hear that Lazarus is raised. Lazarus, come out, Jesus says. The dead walk again. We need those words. We need to be reminded that we are a people of resurrection. And so usually when I've preached this, I've run to the end of the gospel. I've run to that hopeful moment at the end. And we do. We need those hopeful words in these days. As we carry the dead with us, we Christians who carry our loved ones with us in worship, who often when we come to church are remembering those with whom we used to worship, those we love but see no longer. We need those words. But we need to carry not just their memories but their faith. We need to carry not just the memories of the ones we loved but their faith as well. This past week, marked the 40th anniversary of the martyrdom, the murder, the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero. And Romero, about a week before he was assassinated, gave an interview. And he said famously to a reporter that asked him if he feared death, he said this, I do not believe in death without resurrection. I do not believe in death without resurrection. We need those words of faith in days like today. 
Romero continued, I do not believe in death without resurrection. If they kill me, I will rise up in the spirits of the Salvadoran people. We need to carry the spirits of our saints, the spirits of our loved ones with us. We need to carry their faith forward into this day. We need the faith of those who have gone before. They say that death is a great equalizer. If that's true, then what we're finding in these days as the coronavirus rages through our country, through our world, if death is the great equalizer, it is also a great unveiler. This virus is unveiling inequities. We need the faith that we hold, that we share with those who have gone before us as we face these challenging days. Because in the days ahead, we need to ask questions about the inequities that are being unveiled. If we come to the end of this crisis and we do not continue to ask about the inhumanity faced in our prison system, we will have lost an opportunity. In these days, we need to ask with our faith about the ways migrant children are being detained at, their, at the border, not just when they're in danger because of their close quarters of becoming infected, but every day. In the days ahead, we need to ask how we can make our healthcare system accessible to all, because we are learning today that the inequities in our healthcare are making us all vulnerable. In the days ahead, we need to pay attention to the unveiling that is going on. Unfortunately, we can't rush to the end. We can't rush to the solutions. We're at a moment when we in St. Louis are just beginning to climb the curve on this coronavirus. And in these days, I believe it is true that sometimes the only way out is through. Sometimes the only way out is through. And so I need to say a word to the doctors, to the nurses, to the healthcare workers. I, I speak to you as your patient and as a priest. And I hope I speak on behalf of this congregation when I say this. We trust you. We trust you. I say that not to burden you, but as a word of reassurance. We know that in the days ahead, you are going to face difficult decisions. You're going to face choices where there are no good choices to be made. Because of limited personnel, because of limited resources, you are going to face difficult choices. These are likely to be some of the worst days in your career. Know that we trust you and know that you don't go through this alone. There's a name for what happens in the midst of trauma when we doubt a choice, particularly a choice that is made that results in suffering. That, that name is moral trauma. There are moments when we all face moral trauma in the midst of a trauma like what we're going through right now. 
There are moments when we face decisions we don't want to make. And that moral injury that can occur, it's real. But you need to know that you're not alone. Folks that have been through this kind of traumatic situation before have named moral injury. And if you find yourself struggling with a decision that was made when the choices weren't good, when you didn't have good options, know that you are not alone. Know that you are trusted, that you're surrounded by the prayers of your congregation. Lean on your colleagues, call your priest, get in touch with your therapist. Know that you don't go through these days alone. Know, too, that at least in the story we hear today from John, Jesus knew something of what it was to weep. Jesus knew something of what it was to face difficult choices and to be faced with the grief of families. Know that you are not alone in these days. When I say that we trust you, when I say that our prayers are with you, I don't mean that lightly. We don't trust you because of the certif certificate on your wall, the certificate on your wall. It's not that we trust you because of the ranking of your medical school. We trust you because we see you going again and again into work, going to the front line. When we see you, we see what Mr. Rogers told us all to look for when we are scared. Mr. Rogers said, when you're scared, look to the helpers. We know that you got into this work because you care about all of our health, and we trust you to make good decisions with what resources you have. And we trust you to take care of your health in these days because our health depends on your health. And we will be praying for you. And I don't say that lightly. I know that there are a number of people in this congregation praying in ways they have never prayed before. And that one of those prayers is very practical. And there's an African proverb that says, when you pray, pray with your feet. As the leader of this congregation, I will say, I will pray with my feet and I will do everything I can to make sure that all of us are praying with our feet by staying home unless it is absolutely necessary to go out. We will pray with our feet by staying put so that our medical community has a fighting chance against this virus so that that curve can flatten. Our prayers are with you in the days ahead. There's a funny tongue twister that happens for priests. It has to do with where we went to school to study for priesthood. It's caught me at least a few times in my life, in my ministry. It's the name of the school that priests go to is a seminary, but it's pretty easy to accidentally say the word cemetery. They're pretty close. And I've tripped over it before, and I know a number of folks who don't usually say the word seminary have tripped over it, and it conjures this wonderful image of folks studying for the priesthood with their big theology tomes leaning up against gravestones. And at least in my case, it's at least somewhat true, because on my seminary campus in Alexandria, Virginia, there was a little cemetery. 
And that little cemetery had one of the best views of the whole campus. My seminary was inside the DC Beltway, just across the Potomac River from the Washington Mall, from the Capitol. And it had a view of the, a Washington Memorial. Not the famous obelisk in the mall, but another memorial that's in Alexandria, the Masonic Washington Memorial to George Washington, this tall tower with a ziggurat at the top. In the cemetery was one gravestone that looked different than the others. Now, there was a famous professor at my seminary. I didn't know him. He came before my time, but he was still well-beloved the late Reverend Dr. Charlie Price. And it was the legend at the, cemetery, at the seminary, in the cemetery, that Dr. Price had asked to be buried backwards. That is to say, Christians are usually buried with their feet to the east, with this belief in the resurrection that at the last day, our bodies will pop up and we'll be able to see the rising sun the second coming of Jesus coming from the east. And so Christians are traditionally buried with their feet to the east. But Dr. Price asked to be buried facing the other direction because at the resurrection, he didn't want the first thing uh, that he would see to be the Masonic Memorial to Washington, uh, to George Washington, a building that he thought was both ugly and heretical. I say that not just to get a chuckle. I do wish you were here to get a chuckle. The choir just doesn't do it justice on its own. I wish Ernie Last was here with us. We buried him just short of a year ago. Ernie would often guffaw at my bad jokes, which would give the congregation a chance to laugh as well. But I say that not just for the chuckle, but because that funny decision it relies on a faith. Dr. Price's faith that there would be a resurrection and that he didn't want to see that building when he came back to life. It's a reminder that Jesus came not just to give life, but to give new life. Jesus came to undo the death-dealing ways in which we treat one another throughout our years, not just in a crisis. Jesus came to give new life, to end the death-dealing ways. So even while we go through these difficult times, know that we're on our way out. Know that there is hope. Don't let go of the hope. Don't let go in the days ahead, this Lent has been too long, too deep. Somebody posted on social media this week, this has been the lentiest Lent I've ever known. It's been too dark, it's been too deep of a Lent. And it's going to continue in some ways. There's no way that I'm going to be able to open this church for Easter. We already know that. It's going to be a while before we are able to join together again in person. But know that Easter is coming. There's an ancient hymn, and I'm going to quote it, and it's going to break Lent, and I really don't care. There's an ancient hymn. We sing it in the funeral liturgy, and, and it goes like this. All of us go down to the dust. All of us go down to the dust. It's the word at the beginning of Lent. 
when we spread ashes on foreheads and we say, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. But the hymn doesn't stop there. It says, all of us go down to the dust. And here's where I'm going to break Lent. Because it goes on to say, but even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Yes, I said it, and I will say it again, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. We need that word. We need to say that word defiantly. Because the Bible tells us that though we will weep, and though God does weep with us, Weeping is not the end of the story. The story goes on. Death does not have the last word. As the psalm says, weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. Don't get stuck. Keep moving through because the days are coming. When God will breathe life into this church the way that God breathed life into the bones that Ezekiel saw dancing. The day is coming, and we have to keep going. We have to keep believing. We have to keep moving and praying with our feet and working against this virus because Christians believe the strangest and most unlikely truth that them bones, them bones are going to dance around that Lazarus will rise. So, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Say it even in the midst of Lent. Amen.